Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Recorded live from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C., Good afternoon, good afternoon, and welcome to Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. This is the Junctional Thinking Podcast, and I'm your host, Pierre Vigilance. Um, as those of you who have listened to the podcast before know that we talk a lot about intersections in this show, and the, the point of the show is really to explore the opportunities that exist for thinking and action at the junctions or the intersections between health and just about everything. So there are conversations that we've had with people from finance, housing, education, and a whole bunch of different spaces related to health and health outcomes. But I don't know that we really think of this as being a health show. It's really more about where are the opportunities for intersection junctional thinking, partnership development, better listening, and those other things that will all help us as we try to be impactful socially and with respect to community health outcomes. So I have a lot of different great guests who join me on the show. And today, we're going to try something a little different, which is always dangerous, because my guests are the kind of folks who you know, brilliant people, and therefore they may drop some stuff on you that you might not be ready for. So I'm just giving you a heads up in advance, because this conversation is going to be a good one. Um, I'm joined today by two friends of mine who have uh, been gracious enough to join me in the studio. Um, okay, Enya. Okay, Enya. Enya. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I, I butchered that. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, is, uh, is the uh, founder and CEO of Enya, Enterpr- Enya Strategies, LLC, which is a health policy consulting firm. Um, spent some time and still spends a lot of time on Capitol Hill here in Washington, D.C. And um, we're going to get into sort of a little bit of his career path in, in a second. But we're also joined by, from just got up from North Carolina last night, right? Ramon Lamas. Durham, North Carolina. Durham, North Carolina. So specifically, not just anywhere in North Carolina, Durham, North Carolina. Um, I was going to say, I was thinking about the shows like Capitol Hill, Chapel Hill, but no. Not quite. No, not quite. Okay. So um, <laughs> Ramon is an independent consultant in the, I'd say in the population and community health space, but I mean, he, he really, our conversations cut across so many different sectors when we get together. So I'm really glad to have both Okay and um, Ramon here on the show this afternoon. So thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having me. We're, as I say, going to do something a little different this time around. And I think, but what I do want to open up with is just, if you would, just very briefly sort of talk about what you are both doing now, because I think that that's an important piece of context for people to have an understanding of. And then we're going to get into some sort of more timely commentary and stuff like that. So I don't know who wants to who wants to kick go, off. You want sure. to go ahead? Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. So uh, I am a scholar activist and a a um, a policymaker and an author entrepreneur. My background is medicine, public health, health policy, politics, research, uh, and teaching. I'm a former House and Senate staffer on the Hill, and I'm founder and CEO of Any Strategies, which uh, the current business model is to help uh, people uh, of color get jobs on Capitol Hill. So how do you strengthen and lengthen the pipeline of, um, in particular, black people um, getting jobs um, in influential 
you know, spots on Capitol Hill. Right. Um, I'm also a doctoral student uh, right. where I am pursuing a doctorate in public health with a focus in health policy where I am studying uh, the actually the um, the intersections of race, gender, equity, health and policy as it relates to the lived experiences of black men and boys over the life course. Right. So looking at how do we better inform policy at the federal, state and local levels, um, specifically on behalf of black men and boys and to go deeper in terms of their heart health. So. OK. OK. There's a, there's a lot there. And there's a, we should do we need to do a conversation and we've talked about this a mm-hmm. bit before sure. about this issue of the black men's health yes. and, and the issues related to that. And you do have a book yes. that's available right now. Yes. Indisputable. Absolutely. And it, mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, my book uh, titled um, Indisputable, The Story of a Favorite Son. You can find it on Amazon and, and Kindle as well as on my website, enyastrategies.com. That's E-N-Y-I-A strategies.com. Um, the book, the main takeaway um, is that it's about finding purpose by overcoming adversity. And so I go from childhood, high school, college, grad school, med school, and onto Capitol Hill. And, and, I, and, I, and I talk about my experience in terms of how I got to Capitol Hill. Important. Okay. And so that's, that's the main takeaway from, you know, from that book. Excellent, excellent. Um, so, um, and we're going to get more into some of that too, because I think this context is what frames, will frame and help people understand how and why you respond to some of the questions we'll get mm-hmm. into in a bit. Yeah. Ramon, um, tell us a bit about yourself and sure. what it is that you're getting up to now and how you got to that point. Sure. Um, uh, I'm a public health practitioner uh, by training. Uh, I worked at HHS for a few years um, before I launched into independent consulting. Um, what really interested me are initially was the health disparities and, and health equity and, and trying to kind of um, narrow the gap between um, various um, inequities in the system that healthcare is not solving. Um, I work with clients on the business development and strategy front. So I, I help nonprofits or social enterprises, early stage startups um, around how to scale their impact essentially. Um, and currently, I'm actually working with a project with, the, with a good friend of mine, Naveen Rao, um, at Patchwise Labs. And we are looking at um, impact investing, quote-unquote impact investing, um, in the social determinants of health um, innovation world, right? So what are people doing to address social determinants in real life? And how are we mobilizing um, our financing around that specifically? And, and it's... Uh, People are doing it in different ways, and um, what I'm learning right now, and I think hopefully we touch on in this conversation, is that context um, when when we're when we're looking at transdisciplinary cross-sectoral work, uh, equity could mean one thing in one context, and then a completely Something different very thing different. in uh, in another context. So even just framing and understanding the definitions is is one thing that I'm learning a lot is really studying up on what various de- definitions are, uh, how people are using terms right. in, in different conversations. Yeah, and I think that that's, the, and the importance of that is not, uh, we don't always talk about what the definition is of terms, mm-hmm. particularly when we feel like, we, if we only talk to ourselves, and I make this comment about public health folks a lot, we're really great having conversations with ourselves about stuff. So we talk to other public health people a lot about yeah. certain things. So when we say equity, we're talking about giving people the different things that they may need in order to, quote-unquote, see over the fence, right? Mm-hmm. 
um, versus equality, which is a word that it's often conflated with. But when you're in a room with finance people and you say equity, that's a different conversation. Mm -hmm. That's sort of an ownership conversation. It's just like, where is it? It's, It's financial. And that's a very different thing. So your comment about the terms and how we use them actually will segue into another bit of our conversation that we're going to have. And we're doing something a bit different today because typically we dive a bit more into people's backgrounds and histories. But people have been asking um, me to talk about one thing in particular, which we'll get into, but some topical things. It is Wednesday, the 4th of March. And yesterday, Tuesday, the 3rd of March was Super Tuesday. And so it is the morning after, or the day after, <laughs> and 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 what what happened la- about last night, right? Sort of thing. Um, and there's been some changes now. Uh, any any, I don't know if there's too much to talk about here necessarily, or do we want to talk about with respect to? Uh, go ahead. I see. Okay. Go ahead. Go, okay. Okay. Go ahead. I'll try to be succinct. So um, yes, um, this has definitely. So this. This obviously 2020 is probably going to be the most consequential election year of this nation's history in a lot of ways. I know that that's been said before, you know, in previous cycles and whatnot. But right. um, this one uh, is critical. And, I, and, and um, you know, while and there are various ways in which we can go with this, but 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 I'll say that. Um, the critical importance of having your voice heard and voting up and down the ballots in whatever way you lean is critically important. And then this kind of speaks to the extent to which there is there, there has been a culture of creating civically educated voters. Um, and then you have the non-voters as well, which is a whole nother conversation. But um, so you have the two front, the, the two that that did well last night, you know, obviously Biden and Sanders. Sanders yeah. um, we, you know, uh, as of this morning, Bloomberg dropped out. Um, and so we have now Warren, uh, um, who um, is, you know, potentially also going to um, to spend her campaign. So going into the rest of the primary season, we're going to be looking at the head-to-head, by and large, with uh, Biden, Biden and Sanders. Sanders. And so um, yes, a lot of people underestimated Biden. Um, so I'm not going to kind of say come my own personal, but I'm, but right. I will say that um, uh, that 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 the ticket, um, in my mind, should be as diverse as is possible in terms of the president and the vice president. So whatever that looks like, because we have two white men, right, on the left. Um, it would be helpful and wise, I think, to have someone of color um, and, and, and a different gender, you know, out of the way to help uh, to really kind of usher in um, more stability into the, uh, the populace um, for those who lean left. Right. So. Okay. Okay. Fair. Ramon, any sort of like... <laughs> <laughs> too much. I mean, I, I don't want to jump into the, the politics conversation, but I think one thing that jumped into my mind when, uh, as OK was talking, was the diversity in in um, legislative mm-hmm. department or offices, elected officials. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know if there's a lot of diversity, um, and it also, I guess, translates into all the other sectors. Right. I mean, there's 
tech is seeing the same kind of issues in, in, in their leadership and their um, staffs, um, you know, programmers Maker. across right. the board. Right. Everybody's trying to think about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's one, one aspect where maybe we're not really focusing too much on it is in with elected officials right. in, in higher branches of leadership and administrations. I, mm-hmm. I have no idea. I don't have any data to back that up, but it just seems like, um, like OK said, that um, white males are, are, are always kind of front and center mm-hmm. right. for right. leadership. Yeah, yeah. And um, what I'm seeing is and hearing from sort of the business side of the world is that you know, there are many more now, particularly minority women, black mm-hmm. women, getting into and starting up businesses and business ventures. Um, and I think that there's also, though, even though those numbers might be significant and um, and something to pay attention to, the ability for those founders, black and brown founders, to raise funds and create sustainable ventures um, that are meaningful and significant in whatever sector they're in is very different. I mean, the conversation we had last week, Friday, at Well, um, the event we did at uh, GW, was with a number of different community health business founders who were a blend of, you know, there were a couple white men, there were uh, three um, black and brown women, and they were talking about the differences, sorry, four black and brown women, they were talking about the differences that they have in their experiences around raising funds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, raising funds is a big part of the the, pol- the political game too, Absolutely. right? The ability Absolutely. to actually be on the road and fund your campaign is the big reason why some people stay in and others jump out mm-hmm. so or drop out. So um, I think it is going to be interesting to see how the ticket, how diverse the ticket is mm-hmm. with respect to who they can bring into and get in line to actually vote. Right. Um, it'll also be interesting to see whether or not there's some ability to counter the... I don't know how to put this. The the artful <laughs> messaging <There you> go. <laughs> that comes from the incumbent's yes. um, platform. Very well said. Uh, yeah, <laughs> struggling here. Let's talk about something else. Because I mean, it's true though. Because yeah. they have done a they have done a very artful job. Absolutely, and art is. You know, something, you know, what I like, you may not. <laughs> very uh, subjective. Very subjective right. thing, yeah. right? <laughs> so what they've done, though, is notable uh-huh. um, with respect to that. And what they continue to do, even with respect to this next thing we're going to talk about, is, uh, is really interesting. So anyway, thanks for indulging me with respect to that. The voices you've been hearing are those of OK Enya and Ramon Lamas, who are joining me here in the studio today. OK is the founder and CEO of OK Strategy, sorry, Enya, sorry, Strategies LLC, which is a health policy consulting firm. And Ramon is the um, an independent consultant in the community health and population health spaces. So the segue I wanted to make then around information and information sharing and or, or the lack thereof um, relates to this other thing that's big in the news right now, which is um, COVID-19. Correct. And I've had some people say to me, hey, you used to be a health official. Why don't you say more about COVID-19? And I'm like, well, because I don't know that I'm necessarily going to be adding to the conversation in a very substantive way. But I think that there are some things that we might be able to untangle here this afternoon that will help some people understand potentially what the impact is here. Mm-hmm. 
wanted to go back to the hill for a second, mm -hmm. though. There's some conversations that we know that Mr. Dr. Fauci has been told to stand down, right. not say anything. Um, he's a very seasoned mm -hmm. public health and physician and practitioner. Mm -hmm. And having him as the head of the organizations that he's in, um, NIH, not speak to the reality of a pandemic is troubling to me. Yeah. But it's the way that the administration has chosen to try to address Correct. things. What's the environment like with respect to this con these conversations on, on the Hill at the moment? <laughs> it depends, obviously, on what side of the aisle that you're on. Okay. Um, one thing, so there's one thing about messaging, right? How you frame issues, how you frame language. Um, that's one piece. And, it, and, and so what we're, what those that are on the left are, well, though, those in the public health space, for that matter, um, what what we are contending with is, frankly, an anti-science, anti-data environment or context coming from um, in, 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 in the White House, basically, and and so on one hand and in fact uh this morning there there've been some snags around the funding to support efforts to address the coronavirus centered around the uh, vaccine and vaccine support and such so um on the left people are more it's 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 more of a social uh friendly space on the right it's much more conservative um much more um, kind of risk averse in terms of social supports, uh, and so what we what people on the left are fighting against is several factors. One is that we're, you know, um, granted those those that are on the left are in power on the house side, or, or at least on they are in the majority, but when you don't have um, uh, support coming from the White House. Um, and you have a mixed messaging framework that is in motion, you have the, the chaos and the issues and the uh, and um, the turbulence that you're seeing now in terms of how do, how do we best message and address this very real you know issue um, in ways that are measured um, and helpful, and so you have those who, like Fauci, who is a obviously a seasoned career professional who knows the data, knows the science. But as as we've seen, he's been kind of relegated to the sideline in favor of this quote-unquote new hoax and just the 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 inability to manage um, what we're seeing in helpful ways. So that's you know that's been part of it. As you look at this, Ramon, and you too, we talked a bit about the, um, the that more of that community end of things. You work with a lot of different types of organization, some of which should be very impacted by this, and some of which may not be. At least they don't think so. What's what's been your sort of thought process around the the, the non-sciencey approach to things that's coming out of? certainly the White House side of things, and how that's going to impact how communities address this issue. Sure, yeah. I, our conversation earlier, I mean, it was super interesting because I, I think I, I shared the, the 
commentary to you about my own, I guess, awareness around this and like coming off of a cold and I'm, you know, I'm in DC and I usually take public transit everywhere. And it, it had me questioning my behaviors of like, do I want to be in public places and exposed, um, and, and, and really thinking through like what kind of impact that has on my own personal behaviors, but then also on the larger environment and, and how, you know, based on the show, it's like cross-sectional, like what is the cross-sectional impact? And I think our conversation earlier um, was talking around the business community, right? Like all the, the stock markets have dropped for the past couple of weeks and, and, and business folks are very um, forward thinking and they, they, they work with um, projections. And I, I know a lot of companies, at least I saw or read a lot of companies that have already forecasted, you know, that they may not make certain um, yeah, projections yeah. or benchmarks yes. yeah. this year because of this potential out, outbreak, right? right? And, right. and that's super interesting because uh, it, it affects community health, I think. Like if you are a small business and you don't have workers coming in to um, buy lunch from you on a daily basis, I mean, what happens? And then what happens, you know, it's a domino effect. So right. um, I, I think that's what's most fascinating is, mm-hmm. is understanding the the effects of what this thing can actually do in in a magnitude and scale in in populations absolutely and this is sort of where we start talking about these terms social determinants of health Mm -hmm. gets used a whole lot um and it's become definitely an in vogue thing at the moment but uh, you know the policies related to um work leave policies Mm -hmm. or you know those have changed obviously since SARS in the early 2000s and then um, we had the swine flu situation around 2009, 2008, 2009. Even to now, there are more people who have some ability maybe to work remotely without having that be a problem for them. But not all work can be done remotely, right? right? right. And not everybody has the ability to just take that time off without it impacting the bottom line for them and their household. And then we start talking about schools right. and well, just just if there are X number of kids. I mean, I remember reading an article this morning where there was conversation about um, the, a case in a particular part of New York. And then they went into detail about the daughter is this age and goes to this school. The son is this age and goes to this school. He hasn't been at school since this date. She hasn't been at school since this date. So they wanted to make sure people were clear that that person who is... Not the sick person, but the family member of the, a, a, a sick person or is not around you, mm-hmm. right? Because that can create a situation where people are saying, okay, we've got to close this school. Right. We've got to, but closing a school impacts some families much more than it might impact others. If mm-hmm. I have somebody to watch my kids, right. then that's one thing. Yeah. I can go to work. But if I don't have someone to watch my kids, then how does that work? Absolutely. So as you think about this, Okay, actually, as you both think about this, but you know, you think about policies mm-hmm. in particular communities. Are, are, are any of the elected officials you're talking to keying into some of this domino effect stuff and how this impacts maybe their constituents because of the socioeconomic status of some parts of their constituencies versus others? Sure. So um, as they, as um, so by virtue of the fact that they are. Um, elected officials, they have to listen to their constituents. And so part of that and part of what that process entails is the phone calls and the meetings and the emails and the conversations 
um, from the constituents uh, to to the member of Congress and their staff. And so that that informs the extent to which the member of Congress, for example, is willing and or able to become a champion of an issue. Right. And so in this case, it happens to be coronavirus. Right. And so um, that uh, that the narrative from the bottom, from the grassroots um, uh, helps to push that member to advocate for, you know, uh, funding or to pull different levers of policy that um, can get the ball rolling and get the support that is needed to get to the ground um, to uh, address these issues. And so, um, you know, we talked about social distancing, right, and, um, and how that does impact um, the extent to which uh, um, we are able to uh, work effectively and so with the conversations that are had um, and the input that is that is shared with the members of Congress and their staff, they most make every effort to address those concerns by drafting legislation and policies um, that are, in this case, tied to funding um, that can meaningfully address this particular issue. And so right. that's been part of the process. Right, right, right. When we were talking a bit earlier on, Ramon, about that social distancing piece that OK just mentioned and how some businesses, or at least one particular example you gave me of an operation where they said, OK, if we're going to continue operations, maybe we need to split our team. Could you tell us a bit about that particular example that you gave? Yeah, me I'm not sure if it was a, a commercial for Bloomberg, but or a, or an interview that he gave. Well, he but does he, have his name on a school of public health, so well, <laughs> maybe. I mean, that's that's probably part of it. It's a smart move. Um, but essentially, what they said was, "Hey, you know, we're we're looking at this as a um, kind of management approach and a very practical approach. We're going to split our office into two teams and into two different locations, so in case." one team gets sick and infected then there's still another team to keep the work going right and i think what you mentioned it was like continuing. It's continuation of operations planning yeah. right it's something that we talked about with uh, we were talking about supply chain mm -hmm. management and if we know that uh, on the on the road from a, a to a vehicle being made there may be parts of the transmission that come from different places mm -hmm. and go to a particular place for the transmission to mm -hmm. be put together and then that transmission goes somewhere else if there's interruptions in the supply chain to mm -hmm. get those parts to the the factory x yeah. where certain things happen and if those things don't happen there then the next thing can't happen how do you how do you continue that? How do you plan for that? And how do you ensure that there is no disruption of your service, right? You, which is in this particular case, production of a car, but it could be production of a report or continuation of a program or whatever it is. So there are a few different sort of places and spaces that that works. Um, we are going to take a couple minute break um, and then we're going to come back and talk more of this transdisciplinary sort of way of thinking about things but but outside of coronavirus I know there's a lot to talk about with respect to that but we're going to leave that topic alone to get a bit more into the work that these folks are doing um, you've been listening to Junctional Thinking the podcast broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan Washington DC and we'll be back in just a couple minutes
Welcome back. This is Pierre Vigilance, your host of Junctional Thinking, the podcast broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. I'm here today with Ramon Lamas, uh, an independent consultant in the community and population health space, and and also with OK Enya, who is the founder and CEO of Enya Strategies, LLC, a health policy consulting firm here in Washington, D.C., um, we're just gonna. We were talking during the break. It sounded like we were going to stop the, the coronavirus conversation, but it's infectious. Sorry, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't help but throw that in there. We have. We're going to continue just for a second here, because, you know, the um, the idea of so syndromic surveillance you may have heard of is something that um, allows for us using a number of sentinel providers who are out there who tell tell health system, health departments that they're seeing an increase in number of people with certain symptoms, right? Usually flu-like symptoms. Another way to do that is looking at over-the-counter cold and flu medication purchases, so decongestants, um, cough syrup, all that kind of stuff that gets purchased over-the-counter. And it tells us whether or not there's a spike in that. Generally, it's a spike in those illnesses or people feeling a particular way. And people are taking those medications... Um, not so that they can sit at home and feel well while they're binging on Netflix, right? They're taking those medications so that they can go to work, right? right. And I'm not faulting that at all because, as we were discussing before, you know, the idea of telling everybody to stay home if you're sick is very valid and it's very appropriate. And social distancing has been demonstrated to be an effective way to reduce the spread of infections like that of the flu. But... If you're working an hourly job that requires your presence and your absence means that you are not only is the work not getting done, but you're not getting paid, then that becomes a problem and forces people to go to work. And then there's, there's the accountability piece of people who may have the option to not go to work, but if they don't show up to work, then a whole bunch of things don't happen. Patients might not get seen in clinic. People might not get taken care of with respect to a particular deliverable, mm-hmm. whatever that is. So I think that the the take-home stuff, you know, Ramon, you were talking about, um, you know, the personal stuff, like, you know, the hand washing and the keeping our hands out of our faces, um, the, the distancing, staying home if you are mm-hmm. particularly sick because that doesn't do anybody any good. And then 
the connectivity, I think, with your elected official, mm-hmm. to your point about like this is impacting us and this is how it's impacting us, making people aware of that so that the talking points are based on actual people's experiences Absolutely. as opposed to just what we might dream up as the issue. Correct. Do those things, you know, is there anything more you want to we'd add to? No, I think, um, I think just to kind of also plug in, we might kind of get into this as well as the health and all policies framework. Okay. Um, how kind of looking at different policies with a health lens or, or, a, or a health equity lens. Right. And I think um, kind of building that into the legislative process as well. Okay. Um, how do we better or best inform our, uh, our, our elected officials on uh, really tapping into the health, uh, uh, you know, kind of bucket and building that into conversations around the intersectoral, like the, because it's all connected, right? Right. The, the different silos, different sectors. Um, and if we're able to connect the dots in ways that are relevant, helpful, and meaningful, I think we can better um, have, a, have an impact um, that, will, that will lend it itself to positive health outcomes. So. Do you think, though, I'm going to throw this grenade in the room, which mm-hmm. is, Are the voices that you're talking about voices that people always care to hear? Great question. So I'm actually studying, there's, a, there's one book, uh, it's called The Theory of the Policy Process, and then you have the uh, social construction uh, theory. Um, no, because, in fact, the people closest to the pain should be closest to the power, right? And that's not happening at all. Um, those that have the money to get into the room, stay in the room. Um, those who historically have been marginalized, oppressed, so pressed, um, it's much, much, much harder for the people who are living this daily, who, who have the narrative and the lived experiences to better inform the crafting of policy at the federal, state, and local levels to effect change, right? So um, our, you know, those, that, those of color, those that, that are that are that are considered other, quote unquote, those that, that those that are not in, that are not in the majority, um, 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 numerically tend to be shut out of conversations. If you're not at the table, you are on the menu. Mm. If you know, if you're not at the table, you are literally on the menu. Mm. And so that speaks to the voice piece where those who need to be at the table are not um, welcome to the table. And in fact, even if you get to the table, the question becomes in terms of uh, equity, whether they are listened and taken seriously, right. right, in terms of what they bring. And so that's part of what I've lived as well. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so the question that that makes me want to ask, and I'm going to turn this one to you, Ramon, which is sort of as you're out there doing work with different communities and different organizations, and we'll get to the impact investment side soon, but more so on the community health side of things. The challenge of those voices not being amplified, how have you sought to address that, that issue with the clients that you've had and been able to work with? Sure. Um, that's, that's, that's a super difficult question, but I think um, how, I, how we frame it is we, we sometimes, if we're... If we're looking at strategic partnerships with, for example, a pharma or um, a for-profit business or hospital system, okay. um, we take health, I think usually we frame it in a different way and we try to develop the relationship in the, 
in a in a way where health isn't necessarily the center of the right of the thing, right? right? So we we look at it if it's a if it's a business or if it's pharma, for example, it's how can we make your business do better, right? So mm-hmm. it's hey, if forming this partnership with this reach of this population in you know rural Georgia, um, if engaging those people will enhance your you know, and your bottom line and your, edu- uh, your awareness level to uh, a certain treatment um, or a clinical trial, um, I think it, it resonates more than like trying to come at it from a, hey, health is great kind of thing. Like, right, right, right. You know, if, if you're speaking the same language as them, um, then they're more receptive to hearing it. And that's where I think the transdisciplinary or junctional thinking kind of hat comes in mind right. it's adaptability of having of being able to frame your conversation in a specific way in order to reach a specific target audience right no no and as difficult as the issue is what you just articulated i think is 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 easy to to grab hold of but it, it doesn't and see and i'm i'm, I'm t- mm-hmm. so turning to, to okay again because you're an entrepreneur as well as a scientist and policy advocate, etc. So you naturally think about things in a number of different Absolutely. ways at the same time. Absolutely. But there are lots of people for whom, if it's a health thing, they want to put health in every part of the menu mm-hmm. to the point that you are making, right? Mm-hmm. So that you're going to eat it mm-hmm. somewhere in this. It's going to be either the appetizer, it's going to be the main course, it's going to be dessert, it's going to be in the after-dinner drink. We're putting health in everything, mm-hmm. and we're telling you we're putting it in everything. Whereas if you take this other approach, which is one of what's important to you, mm-hmm. whoever it is, constituent, right. business, council member, community person, etc., and then figuring out where that thing of importance can be impacted by whatever set of programs, policies, etc., mm-hmm. health improvements can be the outcome mm-hmm. of that, but don't necessarily have to be the tip of the spear right. Or on every part of the menu, so that it's health, health and rice, right. health and beans, right. health and fries. It's yeah. like you know. So, what's your being on the hill though? <laughs> do people, do people tolerate that kind of thinking? <laughs> okay, you're laughing like so, that's the answer. This no. Is, <laughs> the answer is no. Listen, there's a whole strategy around. So, it, there's a whole strategy around the approach, right? So, the question becomes. What are you going to lead with? Right. Right. And, and, and because it's a literal skill set. Yes. To be multilingual, knowing how to frame language, take words matter, learning how to uh, learn the language, know your audience, know how to frame issues and, and, and pitch those issues in a timely fashion, supported by uh, data and, you know, and, uh, and narrative to ensure that your message is heard. And that's the whole skill set because I travel in so many different circles, almost by default, but also based upon kind of, I think my own personality. Right. I've been able to learn different language and jargon. Right. And translate that information in ways that, that, that the recipient, whether it's a member of Congress or, or, or the brother on the block can get. Right. Right. So it's not, it's that skill set knowing how to really craft and frame things and pitch them in ways that can really get at what you're trying to get at. But you get that. You've got, you've, you have achieved that ability by virtue of 
putting yourself in different rooms. Correct. So if you think about different rooms that you've been in, because you deal with a lot of different folks, and so the impact investment space is a really interesting one because um, everybody wants market rate returns, but then everyone's affo- everybody wants affordable everything. And affordable things don't necessarily give you market rate returns. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be a bit of a... Some tension potentially there, unless we're willing to accept lower returns or longer times to get them. As you deal with folks who may not have heard some of the language of health, how do you approach them as you're talking to them with this impact for this impact investment stuff? Because I think this is a space that more public health people are going to be getting into. Sure. Yeah. It's it's really interesting. Is one um, we've been reaching out to as many thought leaders as possible from running the gamut from philanthropy all the way down to private equity and, and venture capitalists. Um, and, and when we using certain terms like impact investing, um, I noticed that for CDFIs, right? So uh, community development, no, financial, financial institutions, institutions yeah. like LISC, um, LISC. Yeah. LISC is a great example. Um, I, I, you know, I, in my email, it mentions impact investing in a conference around impact investing. And my res- the response that I got back was, we don't do impact investing. But if you, if you break that down, community development in whatever form, if it's, if it's a nonprofit, for-profit, whatever, affordable housing, um, giving loans to like, uh, entrepreneurs of color or any, anything of that nature, creative financing, um, is... If you think about it, impact investing, right? It's mm-hmm. right. It, it, you're making an investment for a community to um, improve in in one fashion or another, some way, right? Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. So, um, I think the terms are scary to some people, and they and they think about it in one way versus, I, I mean, I see the the world in a different way. So I think it's it's like okay, and you have said, um, how can we speak a, a com- more common language so that we can actually talk about issues that we can solve together mm-hmm. right i think that's the big challenge absolutely and and trying to figure out as as um eric letzinger who was on the show before who does uh, some impact bond work social impact bond work is sort of what are the things that we can agree upon are the measurable outcomes and measurable objectives that we agree upon as being are the things that need to be on the table and they they may be different and they may be a long list initially and we come down to and decide that there are two or three things that are absolutely important but it's not just about us it's also about the constituent and i refer to them as constituent but it could be consumer patient client customer community member Mm -hmm. whatever term you want to use there but the the issue there is is that the amount of time it takes to do the work of having the conversations with that group of people is significantly greater than it takes to just go through a data set, Yeah. right? And <laughs> we have to become more comfortable and confident in our ability to make use of mixed-use methodologies mixed yep. so that we're not... Yeah, mixed methods, mm-hmm. sorry. So that we're not just using the quantitative methods exactly. or just using the qualitative methods right in order to really dig into the surface and get to the stories behind the data, right? Because right? this is sort of like, we're talking about this with coronavirus. Yeah. Like, there's a story behind the fact that I'm not staying home from work, right? right? That's, a, that's something that's an important thing to understand with respect right. to generating policy, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that this is it's great to think about these things, but we also have to recognize that it takes longer to get to right. that 
level. Um, but we need to we need to sort of dedicate that time. Sure. Um, we've we got to close out in just a second, sort of just in, in closing, just a, what's your, the most interesting thing that you're working on right now? Like, no more than 30 seconds, go. Um, I am helping black people land jobs on Capitol Hill. That is my current business model. Um, and I'm looking to scale it up uh, into a multi-million dollar enterprise uh, going forward. Um, and so there's a lot in that, but I'm taking my life experience to inform this business model that will change the world. And Ramon? Yeah, so I am I'm actually um, digging deeper into the investing world, and um, I've been having a lot of conversations um, with VCs and with uh, specific impact investors, and I'd like to dive in deeper and hopefully have some sort of collaboration where I can uh, offer insights around what you know, the worlds that I've been in and, and the perspective that I have in around health and population health and junctional thinking and try to apply that into that business context to Excellent. understand that space a little bit more. It's great. It's great. It's great to have both of you here and um, having this conversation. We've touched on so many different things in a very short period of time. So thank you for drinking from the fire hose, if you were with me, um, uh, and not using your hands because, uh, you know, You've got to keep them out of keep them out of the way. Um, the conversations that we will continue to have on the Johnsonal Thinking side of things are going to be not just about getting people together, but also figuring out the how part. So, how do you execute on various elements of Johnsonal Thinking? Listening more effectively, partnership development, building your patience muscle. Those are probably the three big ones. I mean, obviously, being a perpetual learner and not being afraid of leadership positions are the two other things that make up the junctional thinking sort of pentaverate. But it's really interesting to me and important that we can have people on the show who have different career paths but then come together and have a lot of the same types of things to say about the topics that we're talking about. So I think that this topical experiment that we did today actually went pretty well as far as I'm concerned. So listeners, um, those of you who are out there who have subscribed to the show already, please um, send me feedback. And those of you who haven't subscribed, well, change that. And uh, hopefully we get to talk to you again in the very near future. My guests again today, okay, Enya and Ramon Lamas, thank you both for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. I'm Pierre Vigilance, your host of John Snow Thinking, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C., and we'll see you next time. <laughs>